The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website, northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. First Peter chapter 1, I want to read verse 22 and 23. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. I want you to think for a moment about how powerful God is and what that means when He does something. Can a being as powerful as God do something halfway? God never half-heartedly does anything. When He pours out wrath, the whole earth is flooded. When he makes a promise, he swears by himself. When he decides to deliver his children out of bondage, seas are divided and nations tremble. When he decides to give food for his people, bread rains down from heaven. When God does something, it's always the action of the all-powerful. And so what does that mean then? when that action is love. Charles Spurgeon said, The heart of God never does anything weakly. His love is strong and powerful, for it is the affection of an omnipotent spirit. Since God is omnipotent, then His capacity for love is infinite. It's unfathomable. And yet Christ commanded his disciples to love everyone, including enemies, which would make us more like our Father because he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Christ commanded us to love one another as he loved. And our text this morning, the two verses we read, revolve around this command at the end of verse 22 for us to love one another. And as we dive into what that means, we'll also see why it's even possible to have that type of love in our lives. At the end of verse 22, you see this command, love one another. And that command isn't surprising to us. It's not shocking. This is nothing new. It's rooted in the Old Testament. It's echoed throughout the New Testament. Jesus, John, Peter, and Paul, they all commanded us to love one another in some form or fashion. I've mentioned this before. The Bible only has to say something once for it to be important. So if the Bible repeats itself, we better really pay attention. And so the importance and the significance of love cannot be overstated. And when Peter offers this command, it's very urgent, it's very solemn, it's very serious and important. And the fact that it's a command, though, might seem strange to this world, right? 
Can you command someone to love someone else? Is love something that can be ordered, that can be directed like that? This world would have us to believe that love is just this involuntary feeling. That it's something you can fall in and out of. That it's this warm and fuzzy emotion that's best described on the inside of a Hallmark card. But the simple fact that the Bible does command us to love proves not only that you can command love, but it also teaches us a lot about what love actually is. Love is not merely a feeling. It is a choice. It's a judgment. It's a decision. It's a matter of your will. Love is an exercise decision to place the needs of someone else above your own. To look out for their well-being. To do whatever you can to help them, encourage them, support them, care for them, teach them, even if it hurts you. Even if that involves sacrifice. Even if that means you have to give up your time or your money or your comforts or your wants. Even if they can't pay you back. Even if they're pretty unlovable and they don't deserve your love. But isn't that what God did for us? God saw our need. We needed someone to rescue us from sin, from hell, from death, from a life without purpose. And even though we did not deserve it and cannot possibly ever repay Him, He chose to love you. And I know He did because He proved it. He showed it. See, love wasn't just a feeling that God had. I'm not saying that love has no feeling or that it's, you know, completely void of any emotion. But love leads to action. Actions are choices. Remember when we were going through James months ago that James taught us that faith without works is dead? Same can be said of love. Love without action is dead. The, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I would much rather you show me your love than shout me your love. Just like James would rather you demonstrate your faith than just talk about how faithful you are. And once again, that's exactly what God did. He showed and proved His love by His actions. By sending His only begotten Son to die for us on the cross, which is something Peter just reminded us of. Remember in verse 18 and 19, Peter taught us that God took your redemption so seriously that He gave His Son for that. We weren't ransomed by corruptible things, but by the precious blood of Christ. It took Christ to ransom us. It took His blood... But that pain, that loss, that sacrifice, 
didn't stop God from choosing to act for you. If you're lost, you need to repent and trust Christ and receive and experience the love of the omnipotent God in your life. And it's that kind of love, that sacrificial love, that we are called to possess for one another. Love one another. And let's not overlook that one another part of the command. Right before we all start looking around the room, wondering who needs to improve their love, start pointing our fingers at each other. You need to love Brother Matt more. Every one of y'all. Well, this is not a one-way street. It's not one person giving and the other person taking. It's both people always giving. It's reciprocal. It's mutual. There's an old Hebrew legend that I love that, that demonstrates this. There's this old Hebrew legend of two brothers who lived on neighboring farms. One brother had a wife and a large family while the other brother was single. And one night the brother with the large family thought to himself, you know, my brother's all alone. He doesn't have a wife to, to spend time with. He doesn't have any, any children to cheer him. I should share some of my harvest with him. And so that man grabbed up a bundle of sheaves and started walking to where their property lines met. And on that same night, the single brother thought to himself, you know, my brother has so much more to worry about than I do. He's got so much more responsibility to take care of with his wife and with his children. And what a burden. I should share some of my harvest with him. So he grabbed up some of his harvest and he started walking to where their property lines met. And that night, the brothers crossed paths and they dropped their sheaves and they embraced. That's loving one another. It's mutual. It's reciprocal. It's both parties giving. And that, that, that reciprocal sacrificial love should come from within us now. Notice Peter says at the end of verse 22, love one another with, or you could say out from, a pure heart. The source of that kind of love is from a heart that is morally clean, a heart that's free from stain, from shame. I think in this context we would say that it, it goes all the way to the motivation for why you're loving. Your motivation is, is pure, it's genuine, it's sincere, it's innocent. It's loving others simply because it's right. Loving others simply because it means you're obeying God, because He commanded you to do so. Not loving others so that you might get their love in return. Think about this. If you love in order to be loved, then is that really loving from a pure heart? I don't think so. If you love so that others owe you, if you love to sort of buy up others' goodwill so that they might pay you back one day, then that's selfish love. You're really loving so that other people owe you. And true love doesn't keep score like that. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is not arrogant. Well, I did that for them. I did so much for him or her. Well, they owe me. That's arrogance. Love is not like that. Paul also wrote that love does not seek her own. If you love so that other people owe you, that's selfish love seeking your own. Love others simply because it's right. Simply because that's how God is. Simply because we've been commanded to. And Peter says to do this from a pure heart. And notice the end of the verse. He uses this word fervently. Some of you may have a translation that just says earnestly or deeply. It's a good, good translation. I love this word because of the picture that it gives us here. This word literally means reaching out, stretching out, maybe even straining for something. And it was used sometimes in the first century to describe the strenuous, vigorous determination of an athlete. Have you ever seen the finish line of a race replayed in slow motion? Slow motion is one of the greatest things we've ever invented. We see so much because of slow motion. Those runners are stretching out. They are reaching forth. They are straining with every ounce of strength in them for that finish line. There's veins popping out of their necks, sweats flying, their jaws are clenched. They are giving everything for that race. That's how we should love. With that type of determination. Like a gold medal is at stake. Strain and stretch to reach out and love one another. Do you do that? Say, Brother Matt, that's a, that's a lot. That's a pretty tall order. How can I ever love like that? How can I love like God does? Well, Peter actually tells us why we can. And it's pretty simple. It's because something happened in your life. It's because you were saved. Peter describes that event in these two verses from two different perspectives. In, the, in verse 22, he talks about how we have purified our souls. And in verse 23, he talks about how we have been born again. And both of those ideas uh, point back to salvation. It's not two separate things, but he's looking at salvation from two different perspectives. And it's really, really an awesome picture when we put these two things together of, of how man's free will works together with God's ultimate sovereignty when it comes to salvation. First, our responsibility in verse 22, he says, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. This word purified here is different than the word for pure uh, when he talked about a pure heart. And this word relates more to the word for holiness or holy. And it was used often to describe the purification rituals that those Old Testament Jews went through to sort of prepare them to worship or to participate in a feast or, a, or one of those uh, festivals that, that they participated in. And what they had to do sometimes were just abstain from certain foods or wash their clothes, take a bath, fast or pray, just different things like that. And in all of those things, 
there was action taken by the people. They decided to wash their clothes. They bathed. They, you know, they resolved to fast and pray. And the beauty of that is that even though there's nothing magical about bathing or washing your clothes or fasting, what it showed was that the people were, were obedient to God's Word. They did what God said to do. And the same is true of Christians. Notice that Peter said this purifying of our souls came in, or you could say by, obeying the truth. That's something you have to do. God won't force you to obey. Now that doesn't mean we have a works-based salvation. It's nothing we can brag about. It's nothing we can glory in, but it shows our responsibility. God doesn't force anyone to obey the gospel, which is amazing if you think about it. We talked about how powerful God is. The most powerful being in the universe granted free choice to his creatures and allows them to be wrong. He allows men to reject Him. But those who hear the gospel and place themselves under it, who obey, they've purified their souls through obedience. That's nothing to brag about. All we did was what God told us to do. And in verse 23, He's the one who gives us a new birth. Being born Again, that's not what we do for ourselves. That's something we can't do at all. God does that for us. He has the much greater responsibility in salvation, if we can call it that. When we hear the gospel, God's Spirit convicts us. He draws us, but He doesn't force us. And when we respond with humility, with submission, with obedience, our souls are purified and God gives us a new birth. We're born from above like Jesus told Nicodemus. We're born again. Born of God. And so Peter in these two verses, he beautifully details our part in salvation, which is very small. It's just obeying. I think it was Brother Goodwin who used to say, faith is the only thing you can do without doing anything. So we have our part of salvation, which is simply faith. It's obedience and then we've got God's part of salvation, which is everything. He designed the plan. He paid for the plan. He convicts us of the plan. And He's the one who gives the new birth. And so back to the original question of how in the world can I possibly love with that love you've described, Brother Matt? How can I love with a pure heart fervently? How can I love like God? The answer is because you've been saved. The answer is because you've been born again. You have a purified heart. You've experienced the love of all loves. You've received the most powerful, strongest demonstration of love this universe will ever see. And so salvation not only opens the door for God's love to flood into our lives, but also, hopefully, to overflow into the lives of others. Do you remember what Paul told the Romans? That God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In Galatians 5, Paul listed these fruits of the Spirit. And do you remember what the very first one just so happened to be? Love. I don't think it was an accident that the Spirit led Paul to put love as the first fruit of the Spirit. And Peter has his own way of describing how salvation opens the door for godly love in our lives. I want you to notice in verse 22 that one purpose or goal of, of salvation, one thing that it does is that it, it brings a new relationship. Notice in the middle of the verse, Peter says, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Unfeigned love of the brethren. This word for love here is actually a different Greek word than what we saw later in the verse, what we talked about earlier about loving one another. And there's different ideas about how to handle these two words, different ideas about how far to sort of press their differences. Sometimes too much distinction is made between these two words. They're synonyms. It's definitely inaccurate to say that one of them is less love than another. And I can say that because both of these words are used in the New Testament to describe the love of God. God never loves less than He should. His love is never inferior to any other type or kind of love. Remember, His capacity to love is infinite because He's omnipotent. Both of these words mean love. They're both translated that way. But sometimes if the context allows, perhaps there's a different nuance. It's not that one word is greater than the other. It's just a little different. And I think that's why we see this phrase added here, love of the brethren. This is the word where our English word Philadelphia comes from. Philadelphia is what? The city of brotherly love. And this word describes this warm strong bond and love between family and friends. In the original sense of the word, one lexicon says, was to treat somebody as one of one's own people. I love that. You're one of mine. And that's what Peter wants us to see here, I believe, is that when we're saved, not only do we have a relationship with God, but we've got a relationship with a lot of other people as well. Yes, you become God's child, but you also gain a whole lot of brothers and sisters. We're part of God's family. And there should be a warm, strong bond and love between us as if we were family. Because we are. There's a connection. There's a relationship. We share a Heavenly Father. And so we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should have that warm affection for one another. One interesting thing about this term for, for brotherly love here is that it's not used in the New Testament when speaking about love towards an enemy. We'll say Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, Brother Matt. Yes, He did. But that's, that speaks to that choice, that sacrificial love. You can... You can put, you can love anyone. 
You should love everyone. You can always make the choice to put the needs of someone else ahead of your own. And we're commanded to do that. But if we press the distinction between the words, there may not be the same warmth and intimacy and affection and and familial relationship with an enemy. You're still commanded to love them. But this seems to be an affection that exists among us because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. It should be special and warm. I love that Brother Richard chose to sing Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. It's a beautiful hymn with this sermon. This love between us isn't something that can be or should be manufactured. It's not fake. That's what Peter says when he uses this word unfeigned. Some of you have a translation that says sincere. It's a good translation. The word here for sincere or unfeigned was originally used in the drama world in the theater world of the day. And it, one, one author said it originally, it meant inexperienced in the, act, in the art of acting. Have you ever watched a movie with bad acting? It's painful, isn't it? it it's tough. It's, you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> so this word described an actor who held up the mask in front of his face during the play, which that was normal, that was common. But this actor didn't have the talent or the charisma, or the sincerity to make you believe it. He didn't really sell the role. You were never so engrossed in this performance that you forgot it was a performance. You didn't buy it. It was fake. It was phony. It was insincere. And Peter says, our love for one another cannot be like that. It must not be fake. Don't wear a mask, but truly have warm, affectionate, familial love for one another because of our shared salvation. We're all gods. So love one another. That's one of the goals or purposes of a purified soul unto unfeigned love. And then at the end of verse 22, we have that overt command to love one another. Which is only truly possible anyway because we've been born again. Because we've experienced love in our lives. And then that leads us into verse 23. And let's jump back into that verse and finish up. I want to read verse 23 again. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Salvation creates this bond between us. How long is that bond going to last? How long you got? The bond that we have, that blessed tie that binds our hearts in Christian love, is eternal. And it's eternal. It's something that will last forever because our new birth will last forever. The relationships that salvation create are eternal. And so not only will you be a child of God forever, we'll be brothers and sisters in Christ forever too. Forever. There will never be a moment when you're not God's son or daughter and when we're not brothers and sisters. 
Never. The, the very famous A.T. Robertson said one time in one of his seminary classes that in heaven all of God's children will love one another. And so he said, since that's true, we better practice loving each other here on earth. We're going to be loving each other forever, so we might as well start getting good at it. Let's start working on it. Let's start practicing that here and now. Because the source of our new birth isn't corruptible, Peter says. It's not fleshly. It's not something of this nature, not of this world. The source of our new birth is incorruptible. It's from God Himself through His Word, which Peter says lives and abides forever. And there's a lot that we could say about God's Word abiding forever, and hopefully we'll see a little bit more of that next week. But it definitely points to the fact that God's Word is unchanging and always relevant. It's the only message that will ever be worth preaching. Ever. And I love the emphasis Peter has made so far in this letter. And we're not even through the first chapter yet. But the emphasis that he's made on incorruptibility. Early on, he taught us that our inheritance is incorruptible. Last week, I believe it was, we, we saw how our ransom payment wasn't made with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ. This morning, we read that our new birth didn't come from corruptible seed, but from incorruptible. Do you think He wants these people who are suffering persecution to stop or not to focus so much on temporal things of this world, but to shift their focus to the eternal incorruptible, abiding things of God. You're strangers here anyway. That's the way he opened the letter in verse 1. And one of those abiding things of God is love. Loving each other will do so much. Yes, it will encourage each other. It will help each other, strengthen each other, and do all those things for other Christians. But, but even more than that, it will help you. If you love other Christians, it's evidence that you really love God. John wrote in 1 John 4, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. John says, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we've heard from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You want to prove that your love for God is sincere? Then love people. John also writes in 1 John chapter 3 that loving our brothers and sisters in Christ can give us assurance of our salvation. He mentions in verse 14 of chapter 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. John didn't say that loving other Christians saves you. But loving other Christians is good evidence that you are saved. That's how you know you've passed out of death unto life. Lost people don't tend to love Christians. Look at this world. But my goodness, we ought to love one another. Loving each other is also a witness to the world who we truly are. Didn't Christ tell His disciples that the night He was betrayed? When He gave that new command? 
He said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving like that is a choice. If you choose not to, you've chosen to disobey God. You've chosen to just disregard Scripture. You're showing others that you don't really love God. That you don't care to be identified as one of His disciples. If you do that, don't be surprised if you battle with doubts about your own salvation. Love is that important. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul ended that famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13? What did he say? So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. He said love never fails. Love never fades. Love will never cease. I want you to think about this. And Peter's mentioned faith, hope, and love in, uh, in close verses here. But think about this. Even when, when, when Christ returns to this earth, what happens to our faith? It becomes sight. When Christ returns to this earth, what happens to our hope? It's realized. But when Christ returns to this earth, what happens to our love? It goes on and on. Faith can become sight. Hope can be realized. Love will never end. Throughout the ages and ages of eternity, God's all-powerful, infinite love will remain. And we can love with that love because we've experienced it. Because we've been saved. And so love one another. Always. Especially during the times we're facing now. If Peter commanded these Christians who are facing persecution to love one another, and we know the, the value and the benefit and the help they would receive from that, the same is true for us today. Now maybe we're not yet suffering Christian persecution like those readers. I should say yet. But we need each other right now. Don't focus on the trials and the problems and the, the stresses and the sufferings of this world. Focus on loving one another. Let's all, let's all gather up our harvest and start walking towards each other. What a great church we will be if and when we do that. What a great witness we will be in this community if and when we do that. Love one another with every fiber of your being. Because that's what God does for us. Would you stand? Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we're overwhelmed at your love. How we as finite beings can experience omnipotent, 
infinite, transcendent love is, is simply beyond us. And we just praise you and thank you for offering it to us freely through Christ. We pray for anyone who's here who's lost, that they would trust you. Lord, And we pray that those of us who have will let that love that you've poured into our hearts overflow into the lives of others. God, give us assurance of our salvation. Strengthen our church. Lord, help us to, to love one another so that we are good witnesses and, and show this world that you, we are yours. And forgive us when we don't do that, Lord. Forgive us when we fail. You give us grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.